0: After marking hymn number 304, as we've been asked to do by Brother Eddie, we have the opportunity, as we have earlier today, to look deeply to the Word of God for the next few moments, to be encouraged and uplifted by those things found therein, and what a genuine joy it is to be able to come together, having been blessed with this opportunity tonight. As was mentioned earlier, we are indeed blessed as we typically are with a host of visitors and for you we're exceedingly grateful that you've come our way and we want you to certainly have opportunity if possible to join us again at some other time as well. And indeed as we often set before ourselves the wonderful thought of encouraging each other but most significantly to glorify the name of God. We began last Lord's Day evening a series of lessons dealing with that very book which is being covered by the Bible bowlers this year, namely the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We shall continue that series of studies tonight, and I'd encourage you to open to to that particular book in the Old Testament. We had looked especially at chapters 1 and 2 on the previous occasion and had reminded ourselves not only of the background that began that book, but also the scene of events as they transpired, beginning to help us see the reign of David as king of Judah. In fact, a few bits of recollection might be in order, and I chose to start the introductory part of the lesson in in that very fashion in that way tonight. This historical book of the Old Testament is a fascinating study in that it sets clearly before us the reign of that man named David, And not only that, but the various characteristics of not only him, but also of his reign. As we've often noted, the human family in many ways is not much different today than they were then. True enough, technology is far different and other specific matters like that. But as far as the tendencies of humanity, the characteristics of and failures of the human family, very, very little has changed. Needless to say, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That famous text of Romans fifteen four, perhaps leads us to this brief review. We saw as the book opened that that man who was the first king over united Israel had in fact taken his own life on Mount Gilboa. Namely, Saul. Also, in that same battle, his son Jonathan lost his life, and at that moment, we find that Israel found itself without a king, without a leader per se. After a great deal of mourning by David and others concerning Saul and Jonathan, chapter 2 opened with a recollection that David beseeched God to ask if he should go up to Jerusalem, or rather to Judah, for at that time he was still at Ziklag. God very powerfully informed him, yes, proceed up to Judah, and in fact, to the city of Hebron he was to go. David went to that location. There he was invited, or I should say anointed king over Judah. And we find for the first time that well-known man David, ascending the throne of Judah, looking forward, no doubt, to that time that he would be king over a larger portion of the people of God at that time. As chapter 2 raced onward, we also began to appreciate the fact that David himself was in a somewhat interesting and difficult position in one sense. Here he was, anointed king over Judah, but all the while, Abner had himself placed Ishbosheth on the throne of Israel. And thus there was competition. There was, in fact, a divided loyalty. That state of affairs, in fact, led to warfare, it led to a great deal of strife and controversy, and what's more, it led in chapter 2 to a conflict between the two armies. We remember that Joab's army was victorious, that is to say David's, and as that chapter again drew to its close, we began to see that Asahel was put to death by Abner, and that will in fact lead us just a moment into chapter number 3. With those thoughts before us, a brief remembrance Let's now continue on our journey through the book of Second Samuel, looking especially tonight at chapters three and four. As you noted in the reading from the last verse of chapter three, there will be much to transpire prior to that time and we are now in a position to see some of those events. Let's begin then in verse number one of chapter three. Rather than reading these as we have proceeded alongward, might we notice in a very general fashion what unfolds before our eyes. Verse 1 quickly informs us that, in fact, warfare, conflict, and strife continued to be the case between the household of David and the household of Saul. Though Saul himself, as we've already noted, was already dead by that time, nonetheless, those that, in fact, were loyal to him, those who had a degree of allegiance to him, continued to aspire and desire that some member of his family might well be able to again ascend the throne and occupy the very matter that would be the kingship. That's an interesting observation when we recollect that it was none other than God through the operation of Samuel. After Saul's sin of 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 15, in which God had in fact informed him that the kingdom shall be rent from you and given to one that is better than thou, a neighbor indeed, but nonetheless better than thou, God promised to take the kingdom, to strip it from his family. And in the very next chapter, chapter 16, he was commanded, Samuel was, to anoint David. David was God's hand-picked successor to Saul. But the events by which that came about were ever so so enthralling. So much so that in verse numbers 2 and following of chapter 3, we are given some detailed history about the character of David's family while he reigned in Hebron. We notice, somewhat interestingly, that six sons were born to him while he reigned in Hebron, but oddly enough, by six different wives. We have already encountered on many occasions in our study of Genesis and on Sunday morning, and we now see the same issue reiterated here. That was a common day in which multiple wives were apparently the norm, concubinage, if you will. We came to realize in our study even in Genesis that though apparently God winked at it, he allowed it to take place. It was never his ideal. That was in fact not the manner in which he had originally fashioned and established the marvelous and wonderful family. After in fact fashioning Adam, he made one woman for one man for life. Isn't it always the case when we recollect the thoroughness of the book of Genesis even? How much trouble and how many difficulties arose by virtue of circumstances that came out of this one. After all, when even in Abraham's life, though Sarah was his beloved wife, he did, in fact, father a child by Hagar, but oh, what difficulties arose between Isaac and Ishmael, and what difficulties some now 4,000 years later were still suffering due to the difficulties that were brought about on that occasion. Might we remember that... Sarah and Hagar disliked each other and their descendants have ever since not gotten along. Might we also remember the life of David, or rather the life of Jacob. Rachel and Leah, of course, were sisters and Zilpah and Bilhah were handmaids to to the various ones of them. And might we remember there was a degree of difficulty and tension and strife even in that family. It will not be any different in many respects concerning even David's family. Later in chapters 11 and following, we'll find that troublesome times, in fact, will overwhelm David in a sense, and his family, God will directly tell him that the sword shall never depart from thy house. His own son Solomon also took many wives, and they, in fact, encouraged his own departure from the faith, it would seem. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. As you and I open the pages of God's Word, how marvelously wonderful God's establishment of marriage is. Though the human family may often in its own wisdom think that it can portray and set before mankind something equivalently successful as marriage, it will never be so. When God fashioned that woman from the side or the rib of Adam and brought her to him and married them, was it not that occasion in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, when that statement was made, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That testimony still rings loudly and clearly today and is the bedrock not only, of course, of the family, but of society as well. May we ever be thankful and grateful for God's majestic plan. In light of these points and some of the things that shall arise in terms of David, We might note that the chronicler in 1 Chronicles 3 also lists David's wives and children. One of them is given a different name on that location. Thus, if you choose to make comparison, you might notice that one of them is there called Daniel. It's the one called Caleb in 2 Samuel 3. But with those affirmed and set before us, in verse number 6 of 2 Samuel 3, we come back to the historical segment of understanding what would take place in terms of the kingship again most thoroughly? With warfare raging in many senses between David on the one hand and ish on the other, we now have seen and expected that something ultimately would give. Beginning in verse number 6, Abner makes a dramatic mistake. Might we notice that the description of Abner is such that he ultimately was the powerful one in Israel. Though Ishbosheth was on the throne, in many ways he was a puppet king. Abner was the strong one; he was the one ta- basically telling Ishbosheth what to do. Notice at his mistake in verse six, he took upon himself the liberty of going into one of Saul's concubines, which of course again was Ishbosheth's father's concubine. Ishbosheth did not look favorably upon such for that kind of activity was a direct matter of disrespect on the part of Abner to the family of Saul, and in fact, to the very name and likelihood of Saul himself. When Abner was questioned by Ishbosheth concerning the matter, Abner became angry. And in fact, he affirmed, How could you possibly challenge and question me over this lady named Rizpah, who in fact, again, was the concu- one of the concubines of Saul? That anger that was felt by Abner led him to in fact throw his support no longer behind Ishbosheth, but rather David. He in fact told directly to Ishbosheth, I will now proceed to bring about that which God has planned for David all along, to bring all of Israel under his control with him as king. That scene of events we'll consider through much of the rest of this chapter. Notice, first of all, in verse number 12, Abner sent messengers to to David to, in fact, set before him his desire to help David become king over Israel, to bring all Israel under the characteristic of his leadership. David was very eager to listen to what Abner had to say. David, in fact, made one qualification. He agreed to it all, but there was one condition— You must bring Michael, Saul's daughter, my wife, to me. That immediately takes us back to 1 Samuel, chapters 18, 19, and 20. On that occasion, we might remember that in fact Saul had given Michael to David to be his wife. However, that was also the time when Saul was eager to also take David's life. On two different occasions, he would throw a javelin at David, hoping to in fact murder or put him to death. When he understood the nature of the king's desire to take his life, he fled. Michael, in fact, aided him in that, but she remained behind. They had been separated ever since that time, it would appear. Later in First Samuel, chapter 25, in fact, Saul gave her to be another man's wife. It was now that David, in this chapter, requests that she be given back to him. Abner and Ishbosheth together wholly agree to that which has been affirmed, and in fact, she is taken from her husband, whose name was Faltai, and she is sent indeed back to David. The scene of events only heightens in its understanding. When we arrive at verses 17 and following, Abner at that point sends, and then now to the elders of Israel, and asks, and encourages them, follow David and not Ishbosheth. Give your leadership and your loyalty to David. It would seem that on that occasion Abner was very true to his initial word to Wishbosheth. He was not a supporter of the household of Saul any longer. As the things took place, we now appreciate that. Abner, in fact, comes to visit David in Hebron and to share with him how well things are going. It would seem that the tide is turning. Israel is now favorable and showing a degree of support for David. And as Abner comes to share that with him, we quickly find that Joab also, having been recently out of town on a raid, he returns shortly after Abner had left. When Joab discovers that Abner had been there, he is virtually beside himself with anger and fury and in fact challenges David. Are you not aware that this man Abner has merely come to deceive you, to discover you're going out, you're coming in, and will seek, in fact, to do you hurt and harm? In fact, on that occasion, we might well inquire, in what way did Joab have the authority and the position to challenge the king the way he did? Perhaps before the lesson finishes tonight, we'll have opportunity to pose at least a potential answer to that. But isn't it interesting In verses 22 and following of chapter 3, how that when Joab discovered that David had sent Abner away in peace, Joab secretly petitions Abner to return, and in that returning, Abner, in fact, is put to death by Joab and by his brother Abishai. The scriptures inform us as to why they chose to do that. Might we remember from last Sunday evening that Abner had been the very one that put Joab's brother, Asahel, to death, now we notice a bit of revenge. In fact, does that not lead us to see the interesting feature associated with a very good question, it would seem. Perhaps the next slide will help us appreciate that. In the consideration of those things, isn't it a bit interesting to conclude that as Abner was, in fact, on this occasion put to death by Joab, that does help us to recall that God had given a sentence in the law of Moses in which there was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in fact, even it was the plan of God to establish these six cities of refuge whereby Israelites, or Hebrews if you will, could flee when they had inadvertently put someone to death. There was in that day God's prescription for an understanding of this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth with this consideration here. Joab and Abishai now are those that put Abner to death for, in fact, putting their brother to death. Was David pleased with this? Was it such that David gave his support, his encouragement, and his blessing upon that event and on that occurrence? As chapter 3 draws to its conclusion, verses 31 to 39 give us the answer to that question. It was not David's plan. It was not David's idea at all to beseech Abner to return so that he could be put to death. Rather, that was all Joab as well as his brother Abishai's idea. The thought, in fact, is said in these words in verse number 37. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner the son of Ner. Should we not then have some appreciation for David's understanding of human life, for his understanding of the significance of Abner's life and the fact that he was an immortal spirit in the very presence of God? David did not desire to put Abner to death, even though he himself had murdered in self-defense that man named Asahel. It does help us appreciate, doesn't it? that As verse number 39 set before us, which was the text for tonight, And I am this day weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. Perhaps some thoughts concerning that idea would be in order as we look at these things. Though Abner considered things to be well, it would seem in a very quick moment's time, his life was taken from him by those actions of Joab. That very thought helps us appreciate that that law of revenge, though God had set it forth, it wasn't automatically something that was always to be done. Does That also challenges to see the significance, the value, and the importance of the nature of life. Might we notice, and some texts that I've listed for your consideration, that particular law, of course, was done away with at the wonderful cross of Christ. You and I were the enemies of God. Did God then have every right to cast you and I far away into a devil's hell? Well, certainly as his enemies, Romans 5a, that would have been within the bounds of the likelihood of what he could have done. But yet he sent his son to die at Calvary that you and I could be brought from enemy to, in fact, the children of God by faith. Isn't it a wonderful thing to behold that thus our Savior could look squarely at his disciples and say, love your enemies. Matthew 5, verse 44. And he could also say in that same Sermon on the Mount, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 of Matthew 7. It helps us see then that the hatred that could be harbored within us is not something that God would support or find well-pleasing or encourage. He desires that you and I, even love those that would be our enemies. And if it's within our bounds to do so, to share with them the gospel of Christ Jesus and make them our brother or our sister in Christ. We notice thus that many similarities, though they may well be claimed to exist between the Old and New Testament, there are also many differences. Many aspects of worship, The characteristics of God's family being for all humanity, those who are the children of God by faith, all who would worship Him, not merely by birth, physically. Those matters help us also see that as chapter number 3 closes, the Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. The doer of evil being rewarded according to his wickedness. Isn't it a wonderful thing? that you and I will stand individually before the God of heaven on the day of judgment. You will not give answer for the things that I have done, whatever mistakes those may have been, and nor will I have to give answer for what others would have done. We each will be judged based on His, singular and individual, His righteousness or His wickedness. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul amplified and emphasized that in this language, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body. And notice if we emphasize that adjective his, not others, but his body, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That characteristic helps us see then that as we are judged, it'll be by virtue of our accordance to and obedience to the Word of God, John twelve forty eight. Those things are marvelous to consider. Our God indeed shall judge fairly. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis eighteen twenty five. As chapter three thus draws to its conclusion, we now have arrived at another rather critical moment in the history of Israel. Saul, remember, was already dead. We now have encountered that Abner, that very powerful and leading figure amongst the people of Israel, also has been put to death. Ishbosheth is still alive, but might we notice he was a rather weak ruler, as we've noted earlier. Chapter 4 will inform us what will transpire next. So let's look deeply into that somewhat briefer chapter and appreciate the thoroughness of what we encounter there. Perhaps the consideration that should open the chapter would be the very answer, or at least a potential answer, to one of the questions that we raised earlier. If it was, in fact, not the will of David to put Abner to death, if that was not a part of his plan and his decision as ruler, then why was Joab not punished? And why was Abishai not punished by David for those activities? David did pronounce a curse upon them, but why did he not take their life? Perhaps one answer could well be in language such as realizing who were these there was a family relationship between David, Joab, and Abishai. In fact, those two were the nephews of David, for their mother, Zeruiah, was David's sister, that we learn from a reading of 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Could it be that David extended to them a degree of consideration or a winking at what they did by virtue of their association in a family way to him? Certainly it would seem possible, for more than once, David seemed to turn a blind eye to what Joab did, though he did not approve of it. As chapter 4 opens, we now begin to see Israel's difficulty. David was still only king of Judah at this point. The other tribes had pronounced a degree of loyalty to Ishbosheth through Abner. But verse number 1 notes the following, And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. At this point, Israel had, in fact, no strong leader with whom they could trust, and even Ishbosheth trembled, for he himself knew that the real leader, the man truly in power, had been Abner and not himself. No wonder, as verse number 2 begins to tell us, And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands, the name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, the sons of Remon, a Berothite of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. Significant indeed is the fact that Benjamin is here in mention, a tribe that ultimately will have great significance through much of the Old Testament history. With regard to the st- scene of events here, however, mention is made about two men that were captains of various hosts in Ishbosheth's army. These two chose to make a rather interesting and terrible decision. Here's the decision that they entered upon. As fear had gripped Israel, and even Ishbosheth himself was such that his hands were feeble, these two chose to take Ishbosheth's life, chose, in fact, to put the king to death. The conspiracy that they brought about, and the fact that they murdered the king in his own house about noon, would be something that would come back to haunt even them. I would ask you to notice with me the scene of verse number four, or rather verse number five. And the sons of Remon, the Beirothite, Rechab and Baena, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Baena his brother escaped. Though they had in mind the thought that that which they would bring about would bring glory and honor to Israel, because now David could be ruler and reign, the one to reign over all Israel. They here took the life of Ishbosheth. not only taking his life, but in fact cutting off his head and bringing that head to David. These two felt certain and assumed that David would grant them great reward and honor because now he could in fact reign completely over all of Israel and not only Judah. In so doing, they no doubt thought they had done great service to the king, namely the one who would quickly become king. How shocked and surprised they must have been when upon bringing the head of Ishbosheth to David, they found that David's reaction to them was far different than what they had anticipated far different than what they had expected. If you wish to look more carefully with me at verse number 10, David shares with them the following piece of information. Are you aware of the fact, he told Baana and Rechab, that when another Amalekite came to me claiming to have taken the life of King Saul, I did not reward him as he expected. I did not, in fact, pronounce upon him great justice and honor as he might well have anticipated, but rather I had him executed because he had the the character on that occasion of stretching forth his hand to take the life of the Lord's anointed. Now David asked them this question in verse 11. How much more then when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? Can you imagine the degree to which those two begin to tremble? Here they come to David with the head of Ishbosheth bosheth in hand, ready to accept his blessing for what they had accomplished that now permitted him to become the unrivaled ruler of all of Israel. David, however, says to them, Do you realize you've put to death the king of Israel? The very one who reigned and ruled over God's people, do you suppose I will grant you blessing and compliment you for such activity? In fact, I will have you executed. That one who had the daring, the audacity to take the life of the one reigning over the people of God. And so in verse number 12, David commanded his young men and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. The consideration of the murder that we seem to have already seen so frequently in the book of 2 Samuel thankfully will at least allay a bit for a few chapters from time to time. But it does help us appreciate before us that the matter that I've listed on the screen perhaps might be noted in words that could be put in a summary form like this. You and I have seen that David did not seem to behave himself like others of that day and time. Joab seemed to have no difficulty in putting Abner to death. We've noticed others who on many occasions would slay many by multitudes and numbers. David, it would appear, had a heart that recognized the leadership in Israel, and he had an appreciation for God's leadership over that empire and that people. Regardless whether Saul occupied that position or Ishbosheth, David respected that man. That does maybe beg the question, though, what of capital punishment? Here was David respecting life on the one hand, life of Saul and Ishbosheth and life of Abner, but on the other hand, taking the life of Baana and Rimon. How could that be? Is there contradiction there? Not at all. Even God himself on more than one occasion in the law of Moses, commanded life to be taken. Those guilty of idolatry, those guilty of being witches, those guilty of adultery, as well as a total of 11 sins in the Old Testament were to be punished with capital punishment. But that was the very same God who said in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not kill. There is no contradiction there, for it was God who gave the sentence, kill them on that occasion. May we understand even in our day, though the question may arise in the hearts and minds of very many, is it right for our government to proclaim and uphold the matter of capital punishment? Is it right for a person to be put to death for some crime he or she may well have committed? According to the New Testament, such is entirely approved and upheld by God. In Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, continuing through the third and fourth verses of that chapter, We read so amazingly that Paul, living in a day and time under the very powerful Roman Empire, also upheld the right of the government. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The power that be is ordained of God, Paul would declare. That even included the power to uphold the sword in verses 3. Peter, in fact, joined that refrain so wonderfully did he not in 1 Peter 2. As all, And also in 1 Peter 3, as he wonderfully said that the governors, those that reign in a civil fashion and in a civil office, do they not wield the power with the approval of God and carry about sentences to uphold that which is noble and right and to punish those that are evildoers? We can appreciate that this matter... The understanding of God's law and how that it helps us appreciate the thoroughness of his his dealings, even with regard to the human family, helps us see that those things are noble, and David had that authority. In fact, the nature of murder, cold-blooded, premeditated murder, was something that God had said could be punished and was to be punished by death. We find that said more than once in both Exodus as well as Deuteronomy. That thought does challenge us, though, to bring to a close our study of chapters 3 and 4 with the mention of verse number 4 in chapter 4. We had overlooked that verse earlier because it fit rather naturally into concluding some of the things we might well share tonight. We quickly find that Jonathan, at the time he died, had a little boy, a boy whose name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth came to be lame, Because at the tender age of five, when information came to be learned that, in fact, both Saul and Jonathan were now dead, they began to flee from the palace, from the throne room, from the given area. And in that fleeing, the very language reads as follows. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame." Since she took him up, it would seem she carried him, but for some reason the time came, we noticed that he fell. He became lame at that point, but Mephibosheth will be one who is greatly blessed in many ways. Even you and I can see that though the circumstances in life may not favor you or me as much physically as someone else, there still is work that we can do for the kingdom of God. It'll turn out Mephibosheth will be an interesting and powerful player in 2 Samuel before we're finished. But for now, can we not see? This young boy was preserved, though lame he was. David protected and looked after him later. You and I can also function wonderfully for the name of God. Though we may not do that which others are able physically to do, God has given us a work that we're able to accomplish." At the close of Matthew 10, Jesus even said that those who share a cup of cold water in my name shall not have the reward taken from them. Maybe you and I can't do any more than that, but if that's what we can do and we do it faithfully and we do it to the glory of God, God will take note of it and we shall not lose our reward because of it. God expects us, according to the parable of the talents, to do what we can with what we have and to allow Him to receive the honor and glory for it. May we each one here at Pippin do that. And may we, in fact, appreciate that God will use us to bring great glory to his name if we relinquish ourselves to be devoted servants of his. We have seen, as chapter 4 closes tonight, the scene of events where now Israel has no king at all. Abner is dead, and so is Ishbosheth. No doubt that will set the stage as we look into chapter 5 next Lord's Day evening, appreciating who the next king will be. Though we've looked into the Old Testament this evening, may we understand that in summary, some of the things even challenge us in the Christian dispensation today. David highly understood and appreciated the power of God's people. And he, in fact, preciously prized it. Can the same be said for you and me? Do we glory and honor to appreciate the wonderful privilege it is to be called the son or daughter of God, to be the children of God, to be those that are joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God, Romans 8, 14 and following. If that can't be said of you tonight, make certain you understand the urgency of the hour. We are not promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, reads the Proverbs writer in Proverbs 27 2. If you this very night have understood that Jesus died for you, and that in fact you currently are now in sin and as such are lost, having reached that age of knowing right from wrong. If we could be of assistance in your obedience to the gospel, the Son of God demands this of you. Believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess audibly His name, that He, in fact He is that Son of God, and then be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you need to have that accomplished tonight in your life, hesitate no longer. But if you have become a member of that blood-bought body of Christ, having been added there by Christ, but you haven't lived faithfully to His name, come back to your first love. Just as that church in Ephesus was told in Revelation 2, return to your first love. Return to the very side of the One who died for you. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways for you tonight, we'd be happy to do so. If you have a need in either of those ways, or if we could just pray for your strength, Will you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?